Okay, this is Joel Dahlqvist Kullborg sitting with my co-host Brian Karek. Today on the arbitration station, we'll talk about res judicata and emergency arbitration and happy fun time. How many and which languages must you master in order to be a successful arbitration lawyer? But first, hi, Brian. Hey, Joel. Good to be back. Episode four, we are trucking right along. Yes, we are. But we also need to address something that we haven't addressed before. And that is the... How great you looked at it. Yes. Thank so God. Good. It was bugging me. <laughs> oh, with perfect radio face. <laughs> no, but the disclaimers, the, the, the bullshit that we're saying uh, is not someone else's problem. Right. No, we are talking as two people, exactly how it's coming out, two people across of a conference table, not associated with anyone. Our jobs can change, our associations with different organizations and our institutions can change. So this is just to let everyone know that these are our words and our words alone. Yeah, I can only speak for myself uh, when I say that I am way too irresponsible to to speak on behalf of someone else. You do that for a living, though, so that might be different for you. You have a much right. But on my free time, I should wear a T-shirt that says. Are there? I actually saw someone wear a T-shirt that says, "Like I'm sorry in advance for what I might do." <laughs> I think we might. Yeah. Okay. So this is our way of saying that, expressing the same thing at that as that T-shirt. And with regards to our guests, I don't know, we can't really uh, speak to uh, on whose behalf the people we are and will be interviewing in the future are, are speaking. But that's something that our our listeners are smart enough to, to right. figure out themselves, right? But it's also, if you try to use this podcast against anyone in an arbitrator challenge as a way of expressing <laughs> their view on something... Uh, I will first thank you for publicizing our podcast on an international level and in writing, but I will also condemn you for your awful arbitration. Yeah, there is a point, though, where, where we are so good at this that we become a legal source that you could you could cite what we're talking about in our like more substantive parts. So you, you could invoke the arbitration station episode 912 <laughs> in your pleadings. But that's a different question. Right. Good, so let's move on to Res Judicata is first off, right? Yes. All right, so to tackle this first topic, which is actually an enormous whale of a topic, is Res Judicata. And I've kind of split it up in three subtopics, which I think are the most interesting. One is to talk about the test itself on what Res Judicata means. Um, and then I have an interesting thing that I have kind of teased out in my own brain about the applicable law to apply to the res judicata principle, like which version of res judicata should we apply? And then the last one is what to do when you have a conflict of laws issue. So it's kind of like parlaying this applicable law issue into seeing it because I did have a case and I'll bring it up in a general sense um, where the res judicata or to make it more broad, the preclusion principles in a specific uh, legal system was different between another legal system, and those were both at play in that arbitration. But we'll get to that. I'm intrigued already. 
by this good good road mapping. Yes. Mooting students, <laughs> listen and learn. We have three subsets three to subsets. discuss. I had my fingers up as well, but you guys weren't <laughs> able to see that. Uh, so to get through this test, I mean, if we're going to just throw out a test and you're talking with someone around your dinner table about what is res judicata, you have this infamous triple identity test, which um, can be summed up very nicely, but not very accurately into the identity of the parties, the identity of the object, which has been interpreted to be the identity of relief sought, and then you have the identity of grounds or the cause of action. Um, so to tease out kind of the issues, and I think I'm going to present this whole this whole issue in a more academic way, so a lot of question marks and not a lot of answers. Um, but you have, for example, for the identity of parties, you have a lot of issues that can come up. It's not just A sued B and now A is suing B again isn't this convenient. It's the same parties because you have a parent and a sub. You have successor organizations. You have what is what would happen if an arbitration involving multi-party claimants in arbitration A, then only one of those claimants brings a claim against the same person B in a subsequent arbitration. Is that the same? Because they were involved in the first one, but it's not necessarily the same parties. Can I ask you at the outset, though, are you talking about res judicata exclusively, or are you also like implicitly addressing lis pendens, i.e. pending claims that have identity? You are correct, Joel, uh, that it would actually implicate the... I mean, it's the same implication. Exactly. I think when we get a little bit deeper... Actually, most of it is pretty similar um, in that sense. So these could definitely be applied in that that type of case. I think lease pendens is a bit tricky in the sense that when do you have a final decision on the merits? Well, that's also res judicata, um, but kind of... uh, what would be a, you know defining a parallel proceeding yeah um but so i won't approach that in this but i think all of these tests and a lot of these applicable laws would be the same definitely um so to move it on to the second identity in this test you have the identity of object and this is summed up as the identity of relief sought and as any lawyer who can advocate um anything would know that if you have a Relief sought is very easy to craft in a very specific way so that your next arbitration bringing up the same damages could be phrased differently or um, and so would that be, you know, precluded by grounds of res judicata if you were to phrase your relief sought differently? I think that's an easy one to say no, but what if you have the same liability but different types of damage sought? Is that even though the relief sought is different, is that res judicata? And I think some people would say yes, or they would try to argue yes, and there is a case for that to be res judicata. But on the other end, I mean, if you're getting damages, monetary damages, and then you want an injunction in the subsequent arbitration, you're dealing with different issues. And even though the liability is there, you have certain outcomes that are going to be completely different. Um, So in that sense, it could be argued both ways. Um, And then finally, you have the identity of grounds or cause of action. Um, And this gets pretty tricky, um, especially when it comes to court cases coming into an investor treaty arbitration or in a commercial arbitration, um, because there are some cases that have said, for example, bar none, if one case has to do with a treaty and the other case has to do with a domestic jurisdiction, those are completely different cases and there is no res judicata. But then on the other end of that, again, you if 
you're dealing with liability and the purpose of res judicata, which is if there's ever a question, you just kind of go to the purpose of what res judicata is. The purpose is to not litigate the same dispute twice. Does it matter where the case is brought? Um, a lot of people would say that 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 idea that treaty court can be completely separated um, would be a little bit formalistic. It really all comes down to how how strict or wide you are in your understanding of the triple identity test. Exactly. And Sweden, Joel, um, you know that to be a very strict or formalistic jurisdiction, isn't that correct? Uh, well, are you asking me as an academic or as a representative of the Swedish arbitration community? As an academic. Relatively speaking, uh, maybe. And I think I know where you're going with this. Yes. In this particular instance. You and might you, can right. lead, you can lead it in. You can lead it in. Because <laughs> there is, of course, the infamous Lauder versus Czech Republic and the CME versus Czech Republic cases. I think exactly. that's where you're going, right? Yeah. That's exactly where I'm going. Okay, so in this case, then... Generally speaking, I don't agree with your proposition, but here I have to agree that Sweden might be a little formalistic. Yeah, so in that case, to follow up on that, you had these two uh, subsequent arbitrations dealing with the exact same issue, but brought by different claimants against the Czech Republic. And then what happened was, is because you had these um, these two conflicting decisions, well, not because they were conflicting, but one of the cases was challenged, uh by the Svea Court of Appeal, and they did take a rather formalistic and restrictive approach to the application of res judicata um, involving parallel claims. And the Court of Appeal said that the mere fact that the issue is whether proceedings were demanded based on different investment protection treaties, which were entered into between different states, put you on the hold there, there were two different uh, legal document, like legal grounds involved yeah. as far as the um, the BITs involved. Um, <clears throat> so the Czech Republic and the Netherlands in one treaty and then the Czech Republic and the United States in the other, that alone militates against these legal principles, i.e. lease pendens and res judicata being applicable at all. Um, so that was a very... And then they also got into the identity of the parties and I tried to delve into this case just to explain as briefly as I could the relationship between these parties. But basically, you have Lauder on one of these cases who is a majority shareholder slash owner of CME. A physical person. A physical a guy, person. An American exactly. Uh, who uh, owns a company, who is part of another company, who's in a joint venture that wanted to get a license to produce or broadcast material on Czech TV. Um, if that was as simple as I could get it, then I win. Uh, and then the other one who brought the case was, of course, this company. So you have the shareholder and the company bringing the same claims under two different ARP treaties. Because um, the guy is American and that part of the company is Dutch. Correct. Right, yeah. Correct. Yes. Um, so that is a good permutation of how this how these principles are applied and then you have and there's much literature on this each jurisdiction getting into uh, a very nuanced approach on how they deal with res judicata which leads me can i just hold very very quickly and emphasize one thing that i always emphasize when we teach various aspects of these cases at the master's program in Uppsala: the 
claimants in these two cases actually tried to consolidate the cases. That's true. And the Czech Republic refused. That's true. And then at the challenge stage, they tried to have the resulting award set aside because of res judicata, whereas, I mean, they had themselves objected to actually consolidating the cases. So I think that also played into the courts, maybe not expressly, but it's still like, okay, so you, you objected to consolidating the cases and then you complained that there were two parallel cases. Exactly. That's stupid. That was held expressly against them oh, yeah. as a way to show that, I mean, because you're then, again, going back to the principle, why do you have res judicata? And they were basically negating the underlying reason, which is that they didn't, they wanted parallel proceedings probably to like exert more resources yeah. or force the claimants to spend yeah, more exactly. money. And then they're trying to argue it the other way around. No, definitely. That is a good point um, to bring up. So the second point is this applicable law, which law should be applied. And I think the majority is you apply the law. The majority view is you apply the law where preclusion is sought. So if you have an award rendered in Switzerland and you try and recognize it or enforce it in Sweden, then it would be Swedish law that applies. Um, And that's pretty almost, uh, you know, the widely accepted opinion because it, you, the enforcement court or recognizing court can apply the policy considerations underlying res judicata, like not blocking the court systems and not overloading the court systems with duplicate adjudications of the same issue. And then on the other side, the law of the seat is technically deemed not relevant, uh, just like their substantive law is not relevant to the arbitration. Um, and that the law of the prior case should not bind any subsequent court to act or decide in a certain way that they're not used to or that they just don't know about. Um, but this only applies if you go to court, in like the second exactly. bite at the apple as in a court. What if You're it's right. a tribunal? What if you, 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 have, you complete one arbitration and then you, someone tries to initiate a second arbitration before a tribunal? Which should apply. Yeah. And that would go to the one of three alternatives that I found, which usually is like this international test, which you would then get to the general triple identity test yeah. uh, using international law principles and previous cases. Yeah. Um, and that, that is another one. And I feel like that's, especially in arbitration, that is mostly used as far as I have seen in my research. But then the interesting thing is, and the reason why I got into this, is if you're having all of these arbitrations decided on international law principles, and then you bring this case to Sweden with a very formalistic idea of res judicata, then you're kind of, the the way in which the award was rendered or analyzed in the arbitration is going to be completely different. Mm. So that's kind of the critique on this, where the preclusion is sought alternative, because you're going to have very inconsistent judgments it's not predictable for the users of arbitration, counsel, and clients. There'll be no like uniform process. There's no idea on how it will affect third parties because it could change depending on the jurisdiction. So you have a lot of critiques of this. So then a academic third alternative would be to apply the law where the award was rendered. So the law of the situs. Um, and that... I am inclined to like this, but I also take very controversial positions in my life. Uh, But that the judgment as rendered should have no greater effect as far as preclusion is concerned uh, than where it was rendered, because that's the intention of the award being rendered. Uh, You preserve uniformity and predictability because you basically have a Swiss award will have Swiss preclusion elements um, and that everything that happened in the Swiss 
arbitration would be per se precluding anything else. <clears throat> now we're talking about commercial arbitration, though. Yes. This becomes interesting if you extend it to uh, investment treaty arbitration under the exit system, because then you don't have, have a, a nationality, you don't have a C. You're right. So it's a, it's a, it's an A-national or a supranational award. Yeah, and, right. And the exit, of course, does not have, or I guess the exit convention is then Lex Arbitri. Exactly. But it says nothing on res of course. No. No, you're yeah. I then you're in territory that's unregulated, basically, and as far as the investment context is concerned. This is. I should really know this. Has, has there been an annulment case within the exit system when the party trying to have the award annulled has framed its challenge in terms of res judicata? I don't know the answer to that. Question. No, neither do I. There we may be one coming up. <laughs> need a junior person <laughs> exactly, to do Exactly, calling <laughs> all researchers. So let me just give you a final uh, example, which is actually the third topic. So the contract of this case had California law as the law applicable to the contract. This was a commercial arbitration, the seat of the arbitration being in Stockholm. Okay? With you so far. With me so far. Now, the question was, there was a dis something that happened with the contract and the respondent in that case tried to, ex tried to dismiss the case because it was time barred. So you have a statute of limitations problem. Now, which, in that case, the statute of limitations was different because in contract law in the US, it's three to four years depending on the type of case. And in Sweden, it could be seven years, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So you have, so obviously there was an inclination to try and get it longer mm. or shorter, depending on which side of the case you were on. And so the question became, which statute of limitations do you apply? Um, now, this, again, is not res judicata, but it is expanding the issue, preclusion, uh, applicable law related to preclusion of cases. So the question is of the scope of this applicable law or the lex cause, right? So what does the applicable law or the choice of law provision in the contract say if it said any and all matters under this contract are governed by the laws of California? Does that include substantive and procedural? Is our statute of limitations substantive or procedural? Um, so you get into this question, a theoretical question of whether it would be a classification issue, whether it should be substantive or procedural, procedural being the law of the seat, right? Yeah. And then the uh, lex cause or the law of the contract would be only substantive issues. And can you, do you even need to get that far or do, does the choice of law just kind of cover it? Um, now, an interesting thing is that in California, statute of limitations is a procedural issue. Mm. In Sweden, it's substantive. Yeah. <laughs> and so now you have another conflict of law issue. So your classification kind of doesn't bring you anywhere. And then there was um, actually Swedish literature that says if one points to the other and the arbitration is in Sweden, then Swedish law should apply. Um, is this case publicly available somewhere? It's not. No. It's not. This would be good for teachings in conflict of laws or prior to international law. It, it is an interesting case because, I mean, as I had this case when I was fresh out of university, so I kind of had this theoretical academic approach to it and I thought that this classification issue was like 
something really important that we have yeah, to address. That's the first and primary step in an analysis and the conflict. Yeah, analysis. and then you're thinking, okay, well, does can this choice of law? I mean, is this even relevant? Can the choice of law on its own dismiss anything before you even get to the classification? Do you recall if the clause said uh, Californian law? including its conflict of laws provision, or if it was Good only question, expressly the substantive? Excluding conflict of laws, I should. Okay, so it doesn't help you. It, yeah. uh, so it doesn't help with the question. But I mean, but that helps to say that you shouldn't address this point. But before making this whole segment way too long, it just shows that the law applicable can really affect the preclusion of a, of a specific claim. Um, so it may be something I don't I think people will just stick to this amorphous international law principle because it's easier to digest. Yeah. Um, but if you're, cons- you know, consulting your client and they say, what's going to happen after this award or what about this other judgment we have? There's some things that you really need to take into consideration when advising a client. Do you know which is my favorite res judicata triplet entity test case? What? We might cut this if we're running too long. <laughs> it's um, Pantechniki versus Albania. Oh. It's a case that I think every student at least should read. You should read it as well if you haven't. It's uh, one of the few cases uh, in the treaty, investment treaty world, where there's a sole arbitrator. And it's Jan Paulson who, who likes to write <laughs> eloquently. And there I think uh, the issue was a fork in the road. Okay. which is often the scenario in which the triple identity test comes up in investment treaty arbitration. So the investor is barred, the investor has to choose from going to court or going to arbitration, and if he, the investor chooses one path, they cannot go down another path. Exactly. So when you try to go down the second path, the question comes up, okay, so is this the same case as the one you litigated in the first instance? But uh, I, yeah, I should just say read the, read the case because it's a very... Uh, pragmatic, like uh, substance over form kind of approach, the opposite of what you call the Swedish formalistic approach. Yeah, and that was actually uh, part of this international principles analysis of res judicata included the possibility of using the New York Convention, Article 2, as a way to determine this. And then exactly what you said, that people who have advocated this position said it's the most pragmatic. And that's maybe something that everyone should kind of follow. Yeah, every time you ask this type of question to a senior person, an arbitrator, is always the same. Like, uh, you know, finger in the air, which is the the most reasonable, pragmatic approach. It doesn't matter right. what all the academics are, are saying and what kind of very intricate, complicated analysis they are advocating. We just look at what's reasonable. And that's then maybe afterwards you can add some reasoning to, to back up your position. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's move on. Great. So for emergency arbitration, which by the way is a very cool name. <laughs> yeah, we need to have like a siren in the back. <laughs> yeah, really. And I think it's also, as will be clear as we discuss this, you could also, I mean, emergency implies that there is an emergency, which is of course the way the claimant would like to frame any claim that this is an emergency, and the respondent would not agree that it is an emergency. So it's maybe not aptly named, named, even though it's pretty cool. Or they should have just a question mark. Emergency, yeah, exactly. Emergency <laughs> arbitration? So, in essence, um, an emergency arbitrator is an arbitrator to which you can go 
in order to obtain interim measures prior to the constitution of the, the full main tribunal. So normally, even in the most efficient of arbitration institutions, it takes a while to get a tribunal in place. And if you have something when there's harm or a risk in waiting, uh, you can apply for an emergency order before you have the tribunal in place. And it's generally very fast to do so. Most uh, commercial institutions have adopted uh, an emergency arbitration procedure, although they do look differently in different places. And where did it start? This is always the discussion. It, I guess it depends on who you're asking. Is it Stockholm or is it Singapore? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, I thought you well, knew the answer. Well, here for five years, it's always <laughs> Stockholm. It's always in Stockholm. But let's, let's, be, let's rise above this constant okay. discussion of who was first with what, because okay. it's always the same, and the same discussion. It's not specific to emergency arbitration. It's every time there's a novelty in international arbitration, right. all the institutions Join want to claim it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it's Stockholm or Singapore, maybe. We'll probably get angry calls from... From Singapore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we're in Stockholm, so give us a break. But it's, it's been the like sexy thing for commercial institutions in the last five to ten years or so. So the ICC rules, the SEC rules, the, the SIAC, Singapore rules, the LCIA rules, the Hong Kong rules, the Swiss rules, they all include different versions of emergency arbitration. Not so much in the investment treaty arbitration sphere, though, uh, ICSID does not have it. The UNCTRAL rules do not have it. And I will get back to this soon because it's a different thing when you're talking about a treaty-based case. One thing that I... Did, let me ask you this. Have you worked on an emergency case, either at we, an institution or as a council? I have. I was at the institution when they got a when they got an emergency arbitration. Yeah. But I have not worked on one now. Because that's interesting and I know people at, at several different institutions who've worked on these cases it's really rock and roll arbitration when an application comes in because usually on Christmas Eve yeah exactly because <laughs> it's a strategic thing I think in, under the ICC rules the I might be making this up but generally it seems like they have a few days to get an arbitrator in place and just getting a conflict check and you know finding the, the the appropriate arbitrator within a few days, it's very stressful. And then under the ICC rules, that arbitrator has 15 days to render a decision. It's like here, both parties ensure that both parties are present, or at least that they've notified the respondent, and then render a decision. Under the SEC rules, it's five days, which is not impossible, but very, very, very hard. Yeah, and it t- it takes a lot. Uh, in terms of the the arbitrator's availability and and skills, but also of course from the institutions administering these cases. And one thing that I think must be pointed out is that, with the exception I think of the Swiss rules, you have to notify the respondent. So these things, the emergency arbitration proceedings, are not done ex parte in any way. Right. And how do you notify? A government. Yeah, exactly. If if it's an investment case, especially, how do you notify the government, especially if you have a few days? Yeah. That's really, uh, that's a good, uh, let me ask you that, that's a question. How do you notify? When is a respondent notified in arbitration? Is there a way to know? No, I mean, 
if you have the e there I think as far as the institution is concerned it's if you have an email address to them and they send an email and there's no return to sender email yeah so basically then they're notified and then they're technically notified I think that's the same because in courts of course there's all of these very legal requirements yeah yeah saying in the, in the US courts it's they have to be actually received and yeah. it has to be testified by the person who know who yeah and the, I mean the prudent institution of course does a lot of different things in order to, to notify. But if it's if it's a hurry, I guess maybe they're more lenient. That's something we should ask the the people working at the institutions. Mm -hmm. So uh, one other big issue is, of course, enforcement. When you, if you succeed and get an emergency arbitration order saying, generally what you're asking for is to, to cease with something or maintain status quo rather than actively doing something, you're looking for an order ordering the respondent not to do something. But then you want that enforced, of course, or at least recognized in the relevant jurisdiction. And as we know, and our listeners would know, the New York Convention requires that the award is final and binding. And an emergency arbitration order is probably neither, <laughs> because it generally ceases... To, to exist after X amount of days if an arbitration has not been initiated. If an arbitration has been initiated, the full tribunal then has to revisit what the emergency arbitrator said. Right. So it's, it's sort of a temporary thing and thus probably not enforceable. But still, there are a lot of jurisdictions. A few, I think, expressly, they have made it so in their legislation that the, uh, such an order is enforceable in Singapore and Hong Kong, I think. And there also, we have examples, I know, at least from the SEC practice, where these orders have been enforced successfully abroad. Because the New York Convention still, even if it says final and binding, it still allows for the court at the enforcing jurisdiction to be more favorable, more enforcement friendly, of course. You can always enforce even if the New York Convention does not expressly say so. So where do you enforce these decisions? In the jurisdiction of enforcement? Well, I mean, it, it depends on what, what you're, you're looking for. Do. Yeah, exactly. And the cases that I know well, and then, and then I can segue into the discussion when it comes to investment treaty arbitration, what you're trying to do is to get the whole state to, uh, to uh, stay away from doing something that you feel is harming your investment. So then, of course, you go to the hosting right. and ask them not to force a sale of your shares or expropriate something or whatnot. Uh, and so then you go to the host state. And I think the, the, the big case here is against the Ukraine, one of the, the first SCC cases where a lot of uh, legal observers were surprised that the Ukrainian courts actually enforced an, an order against the Ukrainian state. Yeah. But that's maybe the only case that I know of, at least in the treaty sphere. Um, in the investment arbitration context, this is a little bit more complicated than it is in a commercial case or a contractual case. And the SEC rules are the only arbitration rules that are being used regularly in a treaty context that allow for emergency arbitration based on an investment treaty. Mm -hmm. So the as I said initially, uh, neither ICSID nor UNCTRAL have it in the rules, and the ICC actually have excluded 
the application of emergency arbitration from treaty-based cases. Probably, that's an, it's a discussion that you could have that the wording of how they've excluded it actually allows for it, but it hasn't been used and I know that the ICC have rejected applications based on this provision that it does not apply. But the SEC allows for it, and there's been a handful, I think there might be seven or eight cases now based on the treaty uh, that when the SEC has administered an emergency arbitration proceeding. And the problems, and here I, I've, as an academic wearing my scholarly hat, I've been publicly very critical about this because I think it's frankly a stupid idea to have emergency arbitration in investment treaty arbitration, at least the way it's been done with the SEC rules, because the SEC rules have retroactive effect. So the emergency arbitration, as we said, is, is a modern, sexy thing, and the, all the institutions sort of uh, introduced it at the same time. The SEC did it in 2010, whereas all the investment treaties, I think I can say safely, all the investment treaties that refer to the SEC predate 2010. So what you're saying is that the parties didn't agree to this procedure. You, you could argue, you can make that case. And I, I tend to make that case. Yeah. Because most of the treaties that refer to the SEC are from the 80s and 90s. So here this asymmetry comes in when it comes to the formation of the arbitration agreement. In a contract, a commercial contract, you negotiate and you agree and it's the same basically. At the same time, both parties are present signing the contract, negotiating the contract. But in the investment treaty context, uh -huh. The arbitration agreement is formed because the state offers to arbitrate in a treaty and then an investor who, who is uh, within the definitions of the treaty accepts that offer and then when it accepts the offer you have an arbitration agreement. But would you say that extends to other tools that have come up in institutional rules like the SEC rules? Well, I, I, as a matter of law, maybe I should clarify, as a matter of law as it stands, the SEC approach makes sense because the SEC rules in their preamble say expressly that the rules applicable when the request of arbitration comes comes in, that right. those are the rules that should apply. Right. What I'm saying is that you should change that because it doesn't make perfect sense because the rules evolve, especially when it comes to major things like introducing a completely new thing that emergency arbitration was when it came. So there's no way that the states who agreed to a treaty in 1982 would have envisioned that emergency arbitration would come up 30 years later. In the UNCITRAL context, when they redrafted the UNCITRAL rules in 2010, they took the opposite position from, okay. from the SEC. So there's a presumption in the UNCITRAL case that the, the version of the rules that are enforced when the request of arbitration comes should be applicable. But that does not apply if the arbitration agreement is based on a treaty. Right. So that's the reason that you have two versions of the UNCTRA rules, 1976 and 2010. In almost every treaty-based case, unless the parties agree to something else, the 1976 versions apply exactly. because most treaties predate 2010. Right. So they thought about the specific investment treaty context when they redrafted the rules. And the SEC, when they redrafted their rules in 2010, they decided to stick with this the version that's applicable. Retroactive. Yeah, exactly. I've had a case under the 76 rules and it wasn't... Because I, I, when you were talking about this, I was like, are we, do we just have to go back to dinosaur land and have dinosaur <laughs> arbitrations for the rest of our lives? But it wasn't... There's nuances and there's certain things that you can't do, but it was, it was a very fine arbitration. There was no, like... We weren't hindered because there weren't these modern elements involved. 
Yeah, and the uncentral rules, to be fair, are very like flexible and right. modern for their time. And I think there's a case to be made, of course, on the other side as well, that when you agree to, to an SEC arbitration or an ICC arbitration, you agree to, to arbitration under those rules as they evolve. That's, that's a perfectly reasonable argument as well. But I have a certain uh, sympathy for the states who have found themselves to be respondents in these cases, many of which didn't even know that they had investment treaties. And then all of a sudden they have a, a claim and they have like two days to respond in English and like actually address a, an emergency arbitrator. And Yeah, I'm, I mean, the Czech Republic, they have a whole team for investment arbitrations. But imagine a new country being faced with an emergency arbitration. What, what if Sweden was faced with an emergency arbitration? Yeah, Jesus, Sweden's been informed of a, of a treaty case, like May 2016. I don't even know if they have like, started the machine to, to obtain external counsel yet. <laughs> so within five days, it's, it's basically impossible. Yeah. Even for like the Czech Republic or Argentina or Canada, the cases, the states that have legal teams on deck. It's nice, ideally, to say that you can have anything stopped at any time, but the mechanism is, it's not pragmatic, I don't think. I don't think so either. And the thing with the SEC rules specifically is that you can ask for emergency arbitration before there's a request for arbitration, so before anything else has really commenced. So it, it can be just a big, big surprise for the respondent. And then if someone went to the Swedish courts to get a an injunction against the Swedish state. Do you think that would be possible? What in like I'm just trying to think you have a claimant that needs some sort of Yeah, but that's a very good question, but I think it's different because the the Swedish state knows how to defend itself according to Swedish law in the Swedish courts. It's their home turf. Of so course. it's different from getting an emergency arbitrator order from nowhere. But would they just invoke immunity and not even deal with the case? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that open. Okay. I'll probably, it depends on what is being asked of them. Because, as we said, when you're asking to essentially uh, keep status quo, it tends to be uh, matters that are close to the sovereign interests of the state. So the state wants to do something in the exercise of its sovereign power. Right. And the order or the uh, the request is to not do it, so that it might be close to the to the you know sovereign's uh, favorite issues. Right. All right. So do you have your list? Now can we relax? <laughs> Happy fun topic time. Uh, yes, I do have my list. So Joel tasked me with uh, the oopgift. I was gonna say it tasked me <laughs> with the task of putting down a list of the languages that I thought would be the most useful in arbitration at this time. Top five. Top five. And I've made a list as well. And I put them in order of how valuable I think they are. So so did I. Yeah. Okay. Do you think they would correspond? Our two lists? No, I think they'll be completely different. Interesting. I thought they would correspond, but then well, I have I have some wild cards. Ah, that's interesting. Okay, <laughs> but that's before we talk about like the 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 strategy for a young arbitration attorney or an aspiring attorney. Let's just jump into the list and use them as a 
platform for discussion. Okay. The, the just five most useful languages. Just out of curiosity, I think we should yell out number one at the same time. Okay. Okay, ready? One, yeah. two, three. English. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. Of course. I didn't even put English on my list. Of course, English. Oh, and we're okay. doing this podcast in Russian. Right, right. No, you're right. Okay. Everything is dropped down. Oh, you're serious? You, you... No, I forgot to put English because it was just. I just. <laughs> I thought you were joking. <laughs> I just think that it's, like it's the lingua franca. Of no, well, that's why I thought I was like obviously English. So now what's the next best? Sorry. Okay, so so number two then I take it is, is Russian. Russian. Okay, so now we have a top six. Yeah, but I can drop the last one. Okay, so go ahead with the rest of your list. Okay, let's do it step by step. Okay, number two for you is Russian. Yeah, for me it's French. That was my number three. Okay. So That's I bet, not step-by-step. Step. Now you're already... <laughs> well, now now what's your number three? Spanish. That's my number four. Okay, then... We'll... Then my number four is Russian. Ah, okay. And then my number five is, is Arabic. Interesting. I wrote German as my last one. Oh, I thought about that. Okay, let's do it step-by-step step then. Okay. You make your case okay. as to why Russian is the second most useful language. And keep in mind that not everyone is based in Stockholm. Correct. Oh, you're right. But I've, I've been talking to some lawyers in France as well, and they were exclusively hiring people with Russian backgrounds, but not just Russian language, because you also have a lot of other countries that are, you know, Slavic language based that you could kind of get by with Russian. And I feel like it's very applicable, whereas something like Spanish, you're really limited to Latin American countries in Spain. And granted, Spain is a blooming, uh, you know, uh, respondent and investment arbitration. Because yeah, that's part of it. It's, it's not only like which are the big cultures, the big countries. It's also which are the cultures and countries where there's a lot of arbitration. Yeah. A lot of disputes. Of course. I mean, and so then that's... I put French first because you have a lot of arbitration case law coming out of the French courts that are very interesting. And I think that those can be, it could be very useful to know French. And also you have Paris as being one of the hubs. Then I had Spanish and then I had German because I got my brain outside of um, investment law. And I thought that like CISG cases, a lot of those cases are coming out uh, in the German language. And then you have um, Vienna as being a big arbitration center. Um, That's true. Uh, so that's why but I, I was thinking the reason I left German out of my top five mm-hmm. of the most useful languages is sort of a supply and demand thing that there's a lot of people who speak German and it's not that, that sought after. Yeah. And also most people who speak English, which is 100 percent of arbitration practitioners sort of can wing German a little bit. You can at least read a little bit of German and maybe get the basic vocabulary as a Swede. Definitely. Yeah. OK, maybe that's. Not as American. maybe not the same. <laughs> no, okay, Americans excluded, but normal, normal European, English speakers, right? Yeah, like, and you guys could also like figure out Dutch as well. The Dutch people could kind of yeah, exactly. Over. Whereas I, I really take your point when it comes to Russian because then the the supply and demand logic is completely different. That's a different discussion because there is a lot of uh, demand for Russian language, as you say, also because of Ukrainian and Belarusian and all the other Slavic languages. But there's not a whole lot of people who do that proficiently and can also work in other languages. That's that's the key. Yeah, exactly. But then, when did, why did I put French as number two? Well, I, I think still, because because the French people aren't open to 
<laughs> to other languages, maybe. Désolé. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I don't speak French, although I, I, I can read French moderately well. And that's almost um, a must, especially in the like public international law investment treaties where... You, you must almost be able to, to understand basic French and read stuff in French because so many smart, important people still insist on using French for the, the Hague Academy and all the French law professors and a lot of doctrines are being developed in, in the French language. And as you say, a lot of important cases come out of the French courts and they, of course, unless the, uh, unlike the Swiss and Swedish courts, they, they, of course, don't write in English. Definitely and, not. No. So you, you need, and in, in addition to France, you also get a key to Switzerland if you if you do French well. Mm -hmm. So I I still think, and I I'm not sure I think it's justified, but I still think French is a clear number two in the world of international arbitration. If I were to advise uh, uh, an English native speaker with no second language, I would say learn French. Yeah, definitely. And to tell an English native speaker to learn Russian as their first second language would be. So you agree? An impossible task. Me. Have yeah, well, I convinced you to move Russian in? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. No, and it's also like a world language. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, that's true. There, there are concerns other than international arbitration when you decide to learn a second language. Or yeah. Language. But let me ask you this then, on the same note. Do you think it's possible, it's not advisable, but do you think it's possible as a native English speaker to, in our generation... To, to make yourself uh, a name or to have a good career in arbitration if you do not speak at least a second language? Good question. Um, I think there are people now that are working that don't speak a second language, but I don't think that you're going to be top-tier arbitration practitioner or highly sought after if you don't have some sort of element. It's You're... Your employability, I think, goes up exponentially when yeah. you have a, a second language, be it anything but um, but English. As a young practitioner, it's really the best thing you could do to just add uh, another thing to your toolbox because all the other competitors and the, and the peers will be working hard, getting good degrees, being nice people and all the other exactly. stuff. But, but having uh, an extra language is, is, uh, is really... A way to distinguish yourself, and I think it's also generally the way that people sort of get their foot through the door, get their first case as an arbitrator, or get to work on a big case at a firm because you know who's the only guy in the firm exactly. who speaks Moldovan, or who's the only the girl here that can translate this French thing. Yeah, I mean, I when I was interviewing back when I was coming out of school, it was almost like the the preliminary question before whether they would take an interview or not. It's like We, we saw your CV. It looks great. Do you speak Russian? No, we're not looking to hire anyone that doesn't speak <laughs> Russian. You know, that was kind of like, because that's what's happening. And this, is, this actually is a reflection of the market because the market now is, the law firms used to be just huge giants that were super slow and hired everybody and gave everyone a bunch of money and charged clients a million, millions and millions of dollars. Now clients aren't allowing that, especially after the crisis. Clients that are usually companies Are have downsided their legal staff. They've downsized their downsized their budget, and now their budget to have a case that these law firms have to accept is much lower. And so, what does that mean? It's that they're only going to hire on an as-need basis, and either project basis or case basis. And I know that there's 
a specific firm that had a case against a specific country, a huge case. And when the case was lost, um, now they have all these people who speak Russian. I just gave it up. All these people <laughs> that speak Russian and no, nothing for them to do. And yeah. that's so. And that's what firms are doing now is they're hiring basis of the cases that they get. Yeah. That wouldn't be possible in Sweden because you cannot get rid of people. Right. Afterwards. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, and that's and that's also something I also wanted to bring up as as like a as a tangent issue to this language issue is working in different countries, mm. and I know that it, in France it's hard. I mean, because you're also going to be expected if you're speaking a different language. And I don't know if this is directly relevant, but if you're speaking a different language, you're usually going to be in a country where you don't live, and or where you're not from, or where your legal education isn't. And if you're moving countries, then they're going to expect you to learn the language of where you're moving to. So that's another thing to think about. Not necessarily. You don't think so? Yeah, I mean, you're speaking from experience living in Stockholm. And in France, it'll be the same thing? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about the major hubs, but they are all actually English speakers as well. If you move to New York or to Hong Kong or Singapore, the local language is English. Right. That's probably true. Yeah. And then, like, Geneva, you'd have to start learning French. I mean, maybe it's a bit more international there than Paris. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, if you don't speak four languages already, you're not competitive in Geneva in the first place. Either, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's just, I think it's very interesting because you are, it's just something to think about. If you're going to speak, if you're bringing your native language or your second language to a market, I guess you could bring it to your domestic market, but it's usually because you're working in an international sphere and then you have to learn another language. Yeah. I was, as you know, I was a visiting scholar at Georgetown Law in in, in the U.S. And uh, I audited a course. and didn't do anything. I was just sitting there observing how other people teach in, in different parts of the world. And it was, of course, an international arbitration primarily for LLM students but they also accepted JD students. And at like the first session, a lot of the J- American JD students who, who went to American law school asked like, what's, a, what, what's about the, what about the career options and whatnot? And this was like the major thing. All of them wanted to know. The discussion immediately turned into, do I have to learn another language in order to work in this field? In the US, yeah. to work in the US. I don't think, yeah, maybe that wasn't, Apply, but it, it was it was of course an international arbitration, so it was even like, okay. e- even if they were thinking about working in the states, I guess it was in an international context. Mm-hmm. And the teacher was not an American, but a, a Latin American attorney he was like a, a you know professor from practice thing. He basically said yes, but his tip, which is very good, and that I always tell my students is if you want to learn a foreign language, fall in love with someone. <laughs> That's the only super bulletproof way of learning another language or move there yeah the ideally is, both yeah ideally <laughs> both but the problem is is that you don't have that luxury so yeah, yeah of course falling in love with someone is the is the easiest but moving somewhere if you're serious about it i mean you have to commit to that you can't casually learn because they say there's a lot of like um because I've been, you know, studying languages for a while now, and they say that you need to have repet- repetition is the key. You need to do it at least five times a day. So these people that pick up a book every weekend, 
and flip through some vocabulary terms, you're not going to get a level of fluency that you need. Especially not if it's the first time you learn a foreign language or even the second time. Right. Once you're at language number five or six, your brain works differently. I've heard. And it is the only thing you can't BS in your work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you it can, really is. <laughs> you can legal research and you can do that, but if you don't know the language, you don't know the language. That's really true. And it's important to point out that even though... English is the, the primary language of international arbitration. So much is not in English mm-hmm. still. I've, I found this out the hard way in my research when I look at both challenge proceedings in, in other courts and also investment treaties. Yeah, Very, very, very common that you do not find a treaty or a judgment in English. And I've had to like, utilize my network of ex-master students in order to get like the Czech language skills or oh, wow. Russian or just reaching out to people because English will only get you so far if you want to work in international arbitration. Yeah, which is, it's a bit, um, uh, I think you can get the job. I think it's, it only gets you so far in getting the job. I think once you're in the job, you can work in English exclusively in English and you're going to be okay. But I think that you're not going to be the universal lawyer that the firm is going to maybe promote you for, or, you know what I mean? You, you can live a life in international arbitration only in English. However, the world will open up to you if yeah. you're able to speak another language, I think. And that's also something to think about if, you're, if you want to work abroad. Um, they're never going to hire someone in a foreign country that A, doesn't speak the country where, you're, where they're in. And then also, if you can't speak it well, because you're going to have to be in a professional environment uh, working in this. So even if you're only working in English, but you want to move to Paris, you better get some books out because, I mean, they'll hire you, but they're going to expect you to take, I mean, I've, I talked with people and they're going to expect you to take the French equivalency exam for your law degree, ASAP, you know what I mean? And so you're either studying after above and beyond your 2,400 hours. You're also studying French at night, or you can come with a level of French that you've you know, invested in it beforehand. Yeah, stay in school, kids. Stay in school. And, yeah, work abroad. Try try to expand your horizons as soon as possible because that's going to make you the most marketable, I think. <laughs> so let's end the happy fun time segment with, like, giving orders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, it's not so happy or fun anymore, is it? You doctor yet? You <laughs> got <laughs> But, uh, yeah. Okay, so, good. Speak languages. Adios. Get warm. Speak languages.